welcome to the All Things Physical Therapy Podcast. This is your host, DPT Steph, your doctor of physical therapy, bringing you all things PT with an interdisciplinary approach so that you can be the best clinician that you want to be. Thank you for tuning in to the All Things Physical Therapy Podcast. This is your host, Stephanie, otherwise known as DPT Steph, doctor of physical therapy, currently working in acute care. On today's episode, we are chatting with Nicolette, a PM&R or Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation Doctor of Osteopathic Medicine or a DO. And to get us started, Nicolette, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? So my name is Nicolette Finger. I am a DO, a Doctor of Osteopathic Medicine, and I am a Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation Resident Physician um, at UT Health San Antonio. So I'm really excited to be here on the podcast today. Um, I do a lot of blogging about my life inside and outside of medicine, and um, I hope that I can share a little bit of my experience in my life with all of you. I love it. Thanks for being on. And that's exactly how we connected was through social media. And I know PM&R and PT or just being in the rehab world, there's a lot of connections. So I thought this was perfect to have as a discussion for the podcast. Why don't you tell us a little bit about how you got started kind of in your whole world? Did you always know you were pre-med or did you do a DO versus MD battle or how did you kind of get to where you are today? Yeah. So I actually, so I always thought I wanted to be a doctor, but I can't say I knew what that meant. So, you know, at 13 years old saying that you want to be a doctor doesn't really mean anything other than you kind of think it's a cool profession. Um, But I, I had that in my mind in high school and in undergrad and in undergrad had a lot of research and public health experience and really loved those, but realized that what was missing out of both of those was the patient interaction. Um, loved research, loved science, absolutely loved public health, but I just missed you know, that, or I guess I had never experienced it before, but I, I wanted that experience of sitting in front of a patient and helping that one person. So that kind of dro- drove me to apply to medical school. And when I applied to medical school, that's when I discovered that, hey, there's this other pathway um, called the doctor of osteopathic medicine, you know, in addition to it, a doctor of, of allopathic medicine, which is MD. And so I thought I would, I would just take a look into it. The more I read about the DO degree, the more it aligned with kind of who I am uh, as a person. My undergraduate degree is in nutrition. And so I really felt a connection with the osteopathic profession when I was reading about it, applying to medical school. And also, you know, reading about osteopathic manipulative medicine, also abbreviated as OMM, where we use our hands to treat musculoskeletal illnesses and disorders. I felt like that was really cool. You know, I wanted to learn more about that um, because it is, it seemed at the time, you know, not knowing much about it, like a pretty cool way to take away pain um, without medication. And so I, I, Figured I would keep an open mind as going going through interview season through medical school. Um, at the end of my interview season, I sat down with my dad. He's one of those people that you can pretty much just ramble on to, and he won't really give you any actual advice. He'll just <laughs> like let you talk yourself into what you probably would have been doing anyways. Um, but he lets you just vent. And at the end of my conversation with him, I ended up saying, you know, if I don't go the way, the pathway 
if I don't, you know, go to medical school in the pathway that I want to, right, and practice medicine in the way that I feel aligns best with who I am, then why am I even going, right? Am I going for other people or am I going to go to medical school for myself? And when I said that out loud, you know, even though those thoughts had already been going through my head, when I said that out loud, I realized that I really wanted to be a DO. And all of the bias and the negative things I had heard from other people who in the first place weren't even in medicine um, are what scared me about going DO. And so I decided to throw all that away and to really just go with my heart and my gut. And I have never been happier. Um, and then of course, deciding to go into PM&R is a whole nother story <laughs> because I thought I wanted to be an ob going into medical school. So life really just throws you a bunch of curveballs, and it's really fun to, you know, look back and just see kind of how far you came and how your life is so different than you expected it to be. You know, 10, 15 years ago, I wouldn't have, have never thought I'd be here, but um, it's so much better at the same time. That's awesome. And I like that you touched on too, you thought you wanted to be in OBGYN and now you're in PM&R, which obviously are two very different spectrums. So <laughs> yeah. I, I do want to hear the story. So you had this one mindset and now you're going through your years of coursework and then you're starting to get more clinical hands-on experience. How did you end up in PM&R? Yeah. So um, I thought I wanted to do PM, or I thought I wanted to do OBGYN because I liked women's health. Part of like the public health that I spoke about that I did in undergrad was helping women with um, overcome eating disorders. And I loved that. I felt like I was really good at making connections with other women and making them feel comfortable in uncomfortable situations. And so I thought, well, that, you know, maybe OBGYN is the right thing for me. And I loved studying repro. And so it just, you know, even through first and second year of medical school, it all started to fit together and everything pointed towards OBGYN. And then I did my um, clerkships, my rotations. And I, about the first week of my OBGYN rotation, I just thought to myself, I don't know if I can do this every day. And that is nothing about the specialty. That's nothing about, you know, the people who go into it. It's an amazing specialty and, and the people who go into OBGYN, you know, deserve so much credit, but I couldn't see myself doing it every day. You know, I came home and I wasn't happy. I didn't want to talk about my, my rotation. I honestly just wanted to get away from it. Um, when I came home and I think that's something that I would tell people to pay attention to, right. When you do that. And some people may feel the same way when they go on to PM&R, right. They may go home from a PM&R rotation and say, Oh, I hated it. And I can't, I just want to get away from it, but you have to pay attention to how you feel after your rotations. And so I kind of had a crisis, right? I was thinking, oh my goodness, the last two years, I thought I wanted to do this one thing and I don't. So now should I have even come to medical school? Like what, what do I want to do at this point? So I, I reached out actually my, my boyfriend at the time, now my fiance, his roommate was going into PM&R. And of course, I'm sitting on their couch one night venting about how I have no idea what I want to do in life anymore. And his roommate said, you know, you, you would be a good fit for PM&R. Why don't you just go talk to my mentor, just set up a meeting and just pick his brain. And I was so desperate. I said, okay, sure. Give me his email. I sent him an email. His name's Dr. Omar Salad, still my mentor to this day. 
I sat down with him, just picked his brain about what PMNR was, what it was all about. And he looked at me and he said, do one month of a rotation with me and you will go PMNR. I can tell. He was like, I know, I can know your personality type. I know that you will fall in love with PMNR. And I said, challenge accepted. So I did a, a rotation with him, a one month long rotation. And I fell in love with the fact that we give patients hope. Um, I think in medicine, we get bogged down a lot with patients who are so sick and the recovery is so long. And um, in PMNR, you see a different side of that. You see people who have hope. You see people who didn't have hope, who let's say, you know, had cancer, they've recovered from cancer, but now they're still stuck with a poor quality of life because they're dependent on people to help them walk or brush their teeth or use the bathroom. And then they come to see you as a PMNR physician. They work with the PTs, the OTs, the speech therapists, everyone who works on our team together. And then they have hope, you know, they say, wow, I, maybe one day I can walk on my own, or maybe Maybe if I can't walk on my own, but I can use the bathroom on my own. I can have that sort of privacy to myself. Those things are so empowering to patients. And to see that side of medicine totally changed my view. Um, I feel really lucky to have had that experience when I you know, was having that sort of crisis of should I have even come to medical school? I feel lucky to have found a mentor who showed me that side of medicine because it totally changed my life. And um, I was all in as soon as I, you know, the first, I think it was maybe the second week into my rotation, I told Dr. Salad, I'm in, what do I need to do? <laughs> get me on research studies, get me in the volunteer, like help me volunteer. I will do everything I can to go PMNR. And so that's kind of how it all came together, but <laughs> that's awesome. So we keep saying PMNR and for those mm -hmm. who maybe are listening and they're like, why do they keep saying these three letters? Like what in God's name does this mean to someone who has no idea what it is? Give us a short summary of, I guess, like what defines PMNR? Yeah. So PM and R, a lot of people think we put like an N there. So it's PM and R and it stands for physical medicine and rehabilitation. So you can kind of take those words just as they are, right? Physical medicine, we deal with musculoskeletal disorders and illnesses and rehabilitation. So we deal with the rehabilitation of those disorders, but there's a lot of overlap with other things other than just musculoskeletal disorders. Um, some really common examples that we uh, see in our patients are brain injuries. So um, brain injury patients, they need a lot of rehabilitation because um, they do, they, because of the neurologic impact of the brain injury, they end up losing their ability to walk, to speak, to eat, um, to function on their own, to use the bathroom on their own, all of those little tasks. Same thing happens with spinal cord injuries, another big patient population that we deal with. Um, let's say they get in a car accident, right? And they, they break their neck or their back and they can't walk. Maybe they can't use their hands. They can't eat. They can't talk. Um, all of those things kind of go hand in hand with PMNR. And then from there, you get into pretty much anything, any disorder, or any illness or accident that causes an acute problem that somebody then later needs to go to rehab to recover from can be treated with PMNR. And I, the example that I give for kind of the, the bread and butter PMNR 
is inpatient rehab. And so this is probably the, the most perfect definition of PMNR, though it does stem outside of that. But in inpatient rehab, you have the physiatrist. A physiatrist is another name for a PMNR physician. So you have the physiatrist as team lead. And then working with the physiatrist, you have physical therapists, you have occupational therapists, speech therapists, respiratory therapists, recreational therapists. I mean, the list goes on. You're working with PAs, with NPs, with nurses, people of every different specialty and um, discipline. And every single person on that team works to the betterment of one patient. So um, it's a very, very collaborative field and very multidisciplinary, which is another thing that draws a lot of people. That's why a lot of people like PM&R. So of course that's the, like the bread and butter definition. But of course, if you go to an outpatient clinic, you'll see PM&R physicians who specialize in pain management, who specialize in sports medicine, occupational health, um, all sorts of things like that. So you can get more specialized within PM&R but I'd say that inpatient rehab is a good example of how they work uh, with a multidisciplinary team. Yeah, and I think that's a great example too, because I mean, being a PT in acute care, that's been my major understanding with it. Mm -hmm. So I know we'll work with the patients as an acute care, acute level, and then we're like, okay, we want a physiatry consult, rehab consult, and then our PM and our docs come in and they're like, okay, this person looks good for inpatient rehab, like we'll take them. We have one in-house, so it actually works great because we can collaborate even further. But this awesome. is going to, this might sound like a really stupid question. And I feel like my judgment still lacks in this field, even though you just defined it for me. So as a PT or the OTs or speech therapists I work with, we're actually like hands-on doing the lifts, the transfers, the ambulation, et cetera. But the PM&R docs essentially look at our notes and I guess they have more of like the medical approach to it. Is that like a good way to understand it? So they have like the overarching look yeah. or view of everything. And then based off of more of the medical side, they can clear them for inpatient rehab in addition to what we're doing in PT, OT, et cetera. Is that a good way exactly. of putting it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, so exactly. And I think we get that question all the time and it's to it's not a stupid question because it is very confusing, right? Um, I would say that the PTs, OTs, speech therapists, all of the therapists do the majority of the hands-on work, right? As PM&R physicians, a better, an, an easier way, I guess, to think about Medical it management, that, I guess, is like is the that better, we yeah. do, exactly, is that since we are physicians, we do the medical management right. first with the rehab in mind. And so let's say we have a spinal cord injury patient who also has diabetes, heart failure, and hyperlipidemia with peripheral vascular disease, mm -hmm. right? You've got all these medical what a combo. problems. <laughs> yeah, that's like the Texas, uh, we call that like the Texas special or something. But like, <laughs> you have a patient with all these medical problems already, right? And now they have a spinal cord injury. So they need physical therapy. They need occupational therapy, speech therapy. They need all this stuff, but also we have to be really careful with them, right? Because they're going to be, they, somebody with heart failure who gets a spinal cord injury, their heart failure is going to be exacerbated, right? Their heart failure will no longer be under control because 
the body's entire physiology changes when somebody has a spinal cord injury. They'll need titration of their medications. Um, additionally, let's say they've got peripheral vascular disease. Well, now we're dealing with a spinal cord injury patient who's most likely not getting good perfusion to their legs, right? And we have to figure out the medical management, the medical side of that. But we rely heavily on PTs, OTs, speech therapists to tell us what's going on, you know, with the hands-on treatments and therapies. Um, and so truly it is multidisciplinary. We could not do it without you guys. Um, and, you know, I, I would even say that y'all are probably the most important part of the team. You know, y'all are the most important part. We're there to do the, the medical management stuff, but you guys do the hands-on work. Um, and I would definitely stress that, that the team could not be a, a rehab team without all of you. Yeah, totally, totally feel that. Totally collaborative. And I know, and I'm sure you've been impacted as well. So this is kind of where I want to take the conversation now, but in COVID times more so than ever, um, I'm sure you're seeing your fair share of it. I know New York was hit pretty hard or the hardest, I'd say even in March and April. And one of the biggest things that I had to constantly advocate for for my patients are 85 plus days after the ICU and they're so debilitated now we're worrying about like post-COVID syndrome and I'm like no I promise they can do three hours of inpatient rehab like they're trying so hard and then <laughs> now there's a whole bunch of medical sides to it too with everything that's going on um, on top of comorbidities that they may already have. So how has COVID changed your practice or has it changed your practice? And what have you kind of been seeing over the past eight plus months? Yeah. So um, as a resident, I change services every month, right? But I have been able to kind of see what goes on on the rehab floors, even if I'm not there. And kind of what that's been entailing, number one, our beds are being taken by acute beds which of course we are more than happy to give those up for COVID patients if they need the space. Um, our number one goal is patients, patient safety, patient health. And so um, we're more than happy to do that. But that does take away rehab beds, right? We need more space and therefore we'll give away some of our rehab beds to active COVID patients and make those beds into acute um, medical, you know, hospitalist beds or intensive beds. The other thing that we're seeing is a lot of this work on COVID rehabilitation. Uh, one of my, actually my, my department chair, Dr. Monica Verdisco Gutierrez, she is creating a COVID rehabilitation protocol and a COVID rehabilitation unit. Um, and because a lot of these COVID patients, they have number one problems with their lungs, right? But also heart problems, problems with being hypercoagulable, problems, I mean, with all sorts of issues, right? Being in bed that long in a, say, an ICU setting being intubated, they'll have myopathy just from critical illness, right? Their muscles are just wasted. And so they need a whole new protocol to overcome this illness. And so I've kind of seen both sides of that. One where, you know, there's the fear that our training will be taken away because we need those beds to be acute beds, intensive beds, but also um, the really inspiring part of it where we see rehabilitation physicians and therapists coming together to create protocols for these patients once they've recovered you know, from the initial infection. 
which is pretty cool. So I think there's still a lot to come. There's still a lot to learn about COVID and COVID's effect on the body and how we're going to help patients recover from it. But overall, um, I think, you know, I've been fortunate that my residency training has not yet been heavily impacted. That's good. Yeah. And we had the same situation because I, I touched on earlier, our inpatient rehab is in-house as well. And it became a COVID unit during our peak. Um, mm-hmm. So we, we were starting to do almost an inpatient rehab in-house, like on the acute level, because we were seeing patients as much as we could, sometimes even mm-hmm. twice a day, every day, just because they're so debilitated. Mm-hmm. Um Touching back on the collaboration, which I know we said a little bit about earlier, how do you think we can be better from like a PTOT standpoint and then obviously a resident or even when you're a, I don't want to say official doctor because you are an official doctor, but like no longer (laughs) a resident, I guess I can say. Um, How can we do better as like an interdisciplinary team or what are some of the things that you think work best to have a true, like a really good collaborative approach? Yeah. So one of the best approaches I have ever seen was um, on a rotation at UT Southwestern, actually. And we all, every single morning, would meet in a conference room. And of course, this gets difficult with COVID, right? Because we're all trying to be spaced out. But you could probably do this on Zoom or something similar. But we would all, this was pre-COVID, we would all meet in a conference room And we would go down our patient list one by one. And there was no rush. Nobody was trying, you know, this time was actually blocked off for this conversation about every single patient. And we would go one by one, sometimes spending up to 20 minutes talking about one patient because every single person on the treatment team had a chance to speak and was listened to. Um, And so, you know, it would start off with the nurses. It would then go to rec therapy, PT, OT, speech therapy. Every single person who has ever seen that patient would, would talk and let them let the whole team know the progress, how, how much progress we have made and kind of what their thoughts are, how, what the patient maybe needed to do better on, what our goals could be. And we would all make suggestions in that room. And I think a lot of the times in just general medicine, you know, internal medicine, Uh, family medicine, you name it, any specialty, that collaboration is lost because, you know, there's been many times on my, the internal medicine wards that if I am working in the ICU or I'm just working as a general hospitalist in, in residency, where I see that communication lost. The nurse doesn't know what our plan is as the doctor. The doctor doesn't know what the nurse is doing. And that's really important, right? for us all to be on the same team. And so I always felt like that meeting is for everybody to have the time to speak and be heard. And so that everyone leaves the room that morning saying, here's our plan for the day. Here's what we're doing today. Right. And if there's any changes, it'll be brought up the next morning as well. So everyone's always on the same page. Um, And kind of similarly, I think another practice I've seen, which is just incredible is um, family rounds where members of the family, this is also something that's affected by COVID Mm -hmm. because we can't have family members coming in all day. But pre-COVID, we would have the whole family come in and meet us at a certain time. You know, we'd tell the family, okay, 8 a.m. is your family's rounds. And they would meet us in the patient room and the entire team plus the entire family would be in the patient's room and we would go one by one, you know, 
hi, I'm Nicolette. I'm the PMNR physician. We've been working on this and this. This is my goal for you. And then the next person, hi, I'm your PT. We've been working on this and this is our goal for you. And the family got to hear it and the patient got to hear it all. And they felt very included in their own care. Um, so I think both of those practices are very important. And even if we can do those virtually, you know, FaceTiming the family or something um, with COVID, I think they're extremely important to have those conversations and those meetings. Yeah, I think that stresses just the overall importance of communication in general, like between not only the team, but also with the patient, because then you think of now in COVID times where family, I mean, I know every hospital is different. We just started allowing one visitor at a time, but it's only within a certain amount of hours. So if you're doing your, I know from like a rehab standpoint, if I'm doing a session in the morning and family is not there, I need to really explicitly have this patient understand what it is we're doing, what our goals are, what's kind of going on. And it's going to cost you like a couple of minutes extra here and there, but it's something that we should be prioritizing because it's more important now more so than ever before. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think people underestimate the importance of family in patient care. There are so many times where I would have missed something if I didn't talk to the family and the family bring, bring up their concern to me, right? Because we don't know the patient every day of their life. We may not notice something that's different from their baseline because we only know them when they've been sick, right? We don't, we didn't know them before they were sick. And so to have family giving you that information is invaluable. And I think, you know, that's why I always made sure even on my ICU rotations, every single day you call the family, right? If they can't come in every single day, you call the family and you update them, you answer their questions, let them talk to the patient, right? They are an important part of the treatment team. Yeah. I think that's, that's just another great point. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> caregiver, involvement, I think in general is such a huge thing. Mm -hmm. And I know I'm more on surgical floors these days, but when I was on like the internal general medicine floors and you are getting elderly, more, more so elderly patients who have like no clue what's going on. And you're like, oh my gosh, I only know you when you're delirious or mm -hmm. really sick and you have no clue what's going on. And I have no idea how to best help you because I don't even know what you can do or what your baseline is exactly like you said. So mm -hmm. it's more important than ever. And this is like where the team communication comes in. Well, you'll have to talk to the attending doctor, the residents, as well as the nurses, because they see so much there with the patient more than I feel like everybody else is. And then don't be afraid to call social work or case management or whoever mm -hmm. to kind of put all those clues of the puzzle together. Exactly. Yeah. And I always tell people too, like I always tell nurses and everything when the first time I work with any therapist, any nurse, any PA, like don't feel bad about bothering me, right? I'm working right now. I'm on shift. Like you are welcome to bother me at any time. And actually it's not even bothering me, right? Call here's, I always, you know, on rounds, introduce myself to the nurse. If I haven't met them before, give them my pager number, give them my, the way to contact me that day. Right. Because that's just communication is absolutely number one. And I think that's why I feel really lucky to be in a field like PM&R because it's stressed. So communication is stressed so much in PM&R. And I find that it's not as stressed in other specialties. Yeah. And I like that you said you introduce yourself. You haven't met them before. You give them all the ways mm -hmm. to contact you. I wish all of you could be that great. <laughs> no 
no shade to anybody there, but just, just in general, I think that's a great perk. So hold on to that forever. Um, I know I said er when we first started talking, we connected through social media and obviously you're doing a lot of great work there. So kind of give us an overview of why you created this platform, what your goal is, where you kind of see it going. Yeah. So when I first started my blog, actually, it was like not even named Nicolette.life. It was a different name and I just posted about food. I was a nutrition major. So I was just like posting recipes and things like that. And then I got accepted to medical school and I really had enjoyed communicating with other people on social media um, and bouncing ideas off people, just networking that way. And so I decided to change the name um, to Nicolette.life so that I could post about whatever I wanted, right? I didn't want it to be a medical name or another. I wanted it to just be, I could talk about whatever I wanted to talk about. And um, so I started that and with really no goal in mind at that time, it was just kind of, well, I want to post about whatever I want to post about. And I want to connect with other people who have the same interests as me. But over time, I realized how impactful social media can be when mentoring or when wanting to be mentored, right? By someone above you. Um, and also just to connect like with you, right? You are not in, in the medical uh, PM&R, like, you know, med school, but you are in my field. And um, that's so cool, right? That we were able to connect this way. And I don't know, we probably wouldn't have connected if it wasn't for that. There's no other way we really would have, yeah. right? And so I, I just fell in love with that part of it, part, that part of social media. Then when it came time to apply to residency, I had this, you know, realization that I kind of had to decide if I wanted to make my social media private or public, because most likely residency programs that I was applying to would find me on social media, um, just because they usually look people up to make sure that you're a normal person and whatever. And I decided to keep mine public. I, I combed through my own social media and I thought, you know what? This is truly a representation of who I am. And yeah, I've got some personal stuff on here. Like I posted about my engagement. I posted about, right? I post personal stuff, but at the same time, nothing, I'm not hiding any of that a part of me, right? And I thought to myself, well, so what if I posted a yoga flow right? And I'm applying to residency. Well, they'll just know that I was serious when I put that on my hobby section, right? They'll know that I've, that's really true. Like I really do practice yoga. I really do go hiking, like all of those things. And so I decided I'm going to keep it public. And if people don't like it, then that's okay. Right. Then maybe that's not a program I want to be at if they're not okay with that. Um, and I found it to be so helpful, right? People really feel like they know you more um, when they have seen your social media profile. And I, for that reason, encourage people, especially now with COVID, with interviews all being virtual to make a social media, you don't have to be, you don't have to have a thousand followers. You don't have to, you know, post all the time. You don't have to even post educational content, but I encourage people to put their real name, you know, in the bio, put something like whatever, where they went to school, where they go to medical school, maybe you know, aspiring physiatrist or aspiring physical therapist and put a professional photo. And just every once in a while, you can post things like where you volunteered or a cool experience you had in school or something like that. Because when you're interviewing, if people can find that, right, that only adds to your application. Then they can see you in a totally different light. 
and you have full control over what you put on the internet. So you just make that decision about what you want people to see about you and what you don't. And if it is a good reflection of who you are, um, then it will only work in your favor. So I usually encourage people, especially now, to make, uh, to, to make a social media profile, take control over your digital footprint, because likely there's already pictures or whatever. If someone Googles your name, likely they're gonna find something anyways. You might as well have control over what's being posted, right? Yeah. Um, so I think it's important. I think it is definitely kind of a new age thing that we have, especially now that literally everything is virtual. But yeah, <laughs> I feel like it's also grown. I mean, I graduated PT school a year. Wait, I don't even know what year it is anymore. Over a year ago at this <laughs> point, that took me a second. Um, like a year, almost two years ago. Wow. Okay. Reality check. Um, <laughs> But I mean, I even feel like just when, as I was a student going through this past several years, like there was not a lot on social media and I don't know what this huge uptick is, or it's even more prevalent now because of COVID, but I think it's great because I'm now, so this is a perfect example. I'm now learning more what PM and R is without asking the weird attending that I sometimes talk to and making awkward <laughs> conversation and like being like, excuse me, sir, what are you doing with my patient? Um, <laughs> so like, this is great. And I think just using the platform where we're bringing awareness to our professions, but then also just continuing to connect to ultimately be better for our patients. Um, and I agree. I yeah. agree. It's like such a, such a good, good little takeaway to all of this. Mm-hmm. Um, what are any final thoughts or tips you have for students that maybe want to go into PT or want to go into PM and R or just like medicine or healthcare in general? Yeah. So I think number one would be to explore all your options because I'm definitely one of those people who, when I grew up thinking, Oh, I want to be a doctor. I mean, when you're young, kind of, I think that's like the only profession in medicine that's like highly promoted, right? But what you don't realize when you're young thinking, oh, I want to be a doctor is there are so many medical professionals and they're all so such important part of the team and they all do different things, right? So you really should look at all your options and decide what profession is best for you because you can be in the medical field in like 15 to 20 different, I mean, there are so many jobs in the medical field, all doing different things, you know, all contributing to to patient healthcare. And so- like I know the, the classic, you know, med school interview thing is like, why do you want to be a doctor? And it's because I want to help people, but you help people in so many yep. ways and so many different aspects in medicine, all the different, you know, career paths that you can choose in medicine. And so that would be my number one tip is truly explore all of those options. Another plug for social media, because you can do that on social media. Mm-hmm. You can find all of these people and ask them what they do and ask them why they like their job. Um, and why they chose it. Um, and then the next is to not follow, you know, anyone else's path. You're unique and medicine needs you because of what you will bring to medicine, not because you're a clone of somebody else or because you're following in the footsteps of somebody else. You know, if it takes you two extra years to do something, so be it. If you can, if you decide to take a gap year and go be a teacher and then go to medicine or you know, so be it. You make your own career path and every single experience that you have along the way will, will make you a better provider in the future. And so um, I would encourage people, you know, not to compare themselves. I love those because those are just takeaways that can be applied to a variety of healthcare things. And I totally, totally agree 
with all of it. If people <laughs> want to contact you, where can they find you and reach out if they have any questions? So my Instagram is where I'm most active and it's nicolette.life, N-I-C-O-L-E-T dot life. Um, and then from there, you can see all of my blogs and um, other links that I have there in my bio, but that's probably the main way to contact me. Perfect. I love it. There you guys have it. That was Nicolette, our lovely PM&R resident. Um, and thank you so much for, have, for coming on today. And it was great to chat with you. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of the All Things Physical Therapy podcast. Make sure to leave a review and subscribe to stay updated on new episodes. You can find more episodes like these on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And to stay up to date, follow dpt.steph on Instagram or go to www.dptsteph.com.